Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books in History podcast, part of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Christopher Diniz, and today my guest is Dr. Paolo Astorri. He is a research associate. He was a research associate at the Catholic University of Leuven Faculty of Law, where he also completed his PhD in 2018. Today, he is a postdoc at the Center of Privacy Studies at the University of Copenhagen. His doctoral dissertation was Lutheran Theology and Contract Law in early modern Germany, circa 1520 to 1720, and it investigates the impact of the Lutheran Reformation of the field on the field of contract law. That dissertation is the foundation of the book we are discussing today. Previously, Dr. Astori studied law at the University of Macereta and canon law at the Pontifical Lateran University in Rome. He also worked as a legal apprentice at the Studio Legale Astori in Fermo for five years before that. Paolo Astori, Welcome to New Books in History, and congratulations on this publication. Thank you so much. It's a great joy to be here with you. Thank you so much. Before it was a published monograph, this book was your doctoral dissertation, and one can tell it was. It is very specific and precise. It has a bibliography of 72 pages, and yet it is written in a very accessible and inviting tone. When I, when I read it, I feel that I am in a tall grass of experts, but I never feel lost which I think is hard to do and quite an achievement. So would you please tell us briefly, what is the scope and aim of this monograph? And can you explain your thesis and walk us through the four parts? Summarize it for us before we begin, as we begin. Uh, thank you so much. Yes, of course. I'm very pleased to, to ask for this question. So uh, uh, my book is actually, my, my, my PhD um, is divided in uh, four parts. And the main thesis is actually that there was a uh, Lutheran uh, analysis of contract law. Um, legal historians are actually familiar with um, the contribution of the scholastics, the late scholastics, and also the contribution of the medieval canonists. There are books, uh, several books written by legal historians. One was written by my promoter, actually, Wim de Kock, and it was about um, the, the, the contract law of the late scholastics. But uh, nothing about contract law by the Lutherans has been written yet. And so the, 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 in recent times, the, the were, the, there are actually uh, excellent books about uh, the impact of the Reformation on, on law in general, like the books of Berman or the books of Schmökel, Witte, and so on and so on. But nothing has been written in specific on contract law. And so my question was, how would, was that possible that the scholastics, the Catholics, discussed contract law issues and not the Lutherans, not the Protestants? Because contract law at the time was very much important for the daily life of Christians. And so Christians had to be guided into the many issues, the many tricky issues of contract law. There, there was a need of a moral and, and legal regulation of, of contracts. And so this is my somehow basic assumption that existed a Lutheran doctrine of contract, but nobody has ever investigated. And the book is divided in four uh, parts. 
The first part is about uh, the general. So I explain how and why actually uh, Catholics and Lutherans were dealing with the issues of contract law. Because if we think about the reality of today, nowadays, uh, contract law is very far from theology. Uh, so people might think, why are we actually dealing with, uh, with theologians? Well, uh, theologians were actually involved with contract law, both in the Middle Age and in the modern, early modern period, and both Catholics and Lutherans. And so I explained this first part, somehow the, the genre, both from the Catholic and the Protestant side. For the Lutheran side, it's, it's actually an, an explanation of my sources. Then in the second part, I go on uh, the basically basic elements. So I explain where actually, what are actually the, the basic principles of contract law uh, designed by the Lutherans and where we can actually find them. They are included in the seventh commandment, which means you shall not uh, steal. And in the eighth commandment, you shall not bear false witness. These two commandments were actually the framework for uh, more specific uh, norms on, uh, on uh, contracts. The third part is about uh, particular types of contracts. So I, I focused then on uh, somehow the tricky issues of the time, which were mainly the sale uh, and, uh, and loans. Sales, uh, just price was a uh, big debated subject, but also the lease of the body. So for instance, the uh, prostitution was uh, uh, quite a moral subject at the time. Lending and the interest prohibition is uh, my long, long chapter about uh, uh, how was actually possible to, to borrow money at interest and the strategies adopted by the Catholics and the Lutherans and the novelties of the Reformation on this. The fourth part is about um, somehow the use by theological works by uh, jurists. The point is, uh, I not only investigated the works of theologians, but also how the jurists, the lawyers, actually used the works of the theologians. And this is the content of my fourth part, which is divided in two chapters. First chapter is about a dispute on, the, on interest where actually um, theologians and juries were cooperating in solving this dispute. And the second chapter is about the contribution of the juries in itself. So I investigated uh, a couple of uh, important juries and their opinion on uh, issues about usury and how these juries actually used or didn't use, but I saw that they used the works of the theologians. Then I have... Um, Summary, because I thought my work is too long, so I need to make a summary for people who don't have time to read, because I honestly think that nobody has time to read my entire book, is too long. But so I thought it's good to have a summary and then conclusion. This is it. So, um, yes, and, and I think that's a very skillful way to do it, because you can read the conclusion, and then when you find, I want to know more about this or that, I can go back and seek out exactly where you... Uh, lay, lay the argument and find the evidence and the really wonderful notes that lead you to um, primary sources as you go. So tell us, um, 
Luther, you know, the, you know the, the Martin Luther's Reformation is a definitive turn turn in history. And you write that the Lutheran gaze started not from human freedom, but from the grace of God. And you emphasize the difference in justification by faith, where salvation comes through faith and not through pen, penance. How does that affect something as um, worldly as contract law? That's a wonderful question. Thank you so much. Uh, well, the point is that um, somehow the entire body of uh, of rules that were uh, created by by the, the Lutherans, this entire body was based on the energy of faith. So the main idea was that um, Christians comply with rules with the energy of the Holy Spirit and their faith. So a Christian receives faith, receives faith and, and so grace, so is saved. He has no longer to worry about eternal damnation because he's saved. And because of the faith that he received, because of the grace of God, then he is willing to uh, follow the, the rules. And these rules are actually... Um, Followed, kept because of uh, charity, but this charity is a fruit of uh, of gratitude for the salvation already obtained, and this is the the key point of the Reformation. So, Christian follows these rules because of the grace of God. And how Instead, does that affect the law? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I can make this. Instead, for the Catholics, the point is different. The point is um, these rules are actually a road to salvation. So by complying to these rules, I either go towards salvation or towards damnation. So if, if I fail to keep a rule, I sin for the, for the Catholics, I, mean, I sin, and this is an obstacle to my salvation. And I have to confess this sin, this sin and be punished for this. May I may I ask for one point of clarification? Do you think this is true of Catholics today, or are you speaking about 16th century Catholics? I am thinking about 16th century Catholics, not today. Okay, thank you. No, no. I, I, this is just uh, the, the, the view that was uh, was actually. I, I must. I honestly must say that I didn't work with sources of the 19th, 20th, or 21st century. So this is only about 16th, 17th century, and. Um, Somehow, also, the, the Lutheran positions might be completely different nowadays. I actually don't know what is the Lutheran position on contract law in the 21st century. I, I really don't know. But in the 16th, 17th century, there was this, this difference. Um, and for, for, for the Catholics, this was, yeah. Uh, was uh, the, the, the point is that the courts, so called uh, confession or court of conscience, had a pretty much legal character. So uh, violation of, of a rule uh, corresponded to a penance and, and a penance and, and so the, the, there was a, con a consequence. Instead for, for the Lutherans, yes, there was the consequence but the point was not about salvation because salvation was already obtained. And this somehow affected the law in the sense that uh, yeah, first of all, the the um, Catholic 
way of approaching to contract law was very much detailed. So the, 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 the Cadillacs, they wrote uh, really thousands of norms, very much detailed because every action has to be directed, guided, and the Christian had always to know exactly what to do and not to do. Is, uh, if, if he was sinning or not sinning, that was important, that was established before. Instead, for the, for the Lutherans, it was not always, but often a matter of principles. So I, you have this guideline, you have to act with charity towards your neighbor. But in the specific situation, it's just yourself, it's, it's just you that has to decide, you have to decide what is the best way not to harm, not to damage your neighbor. So it's very much uh, theological, less legal, and very much um, general. Not always, but, but very often. Instead, for the Catholics, uh, we may think about uh, restitution. It was very detailed for the Catholics, but not at all for the Lutherans. Is that clear? Yes. Um, uh, so the law we have today is built on these bricks, perhaps, that are hidden from us. We stand on a giant edifice. Of, of all that came before. And you make the point um, uh, in, in a couple of places that uh, this has, that uh, when religion has become marginalized in public debate, you write, and I think in, you mean in the last last century or, or a couple, the teachings of Lutheran theologian, theologians and jurists have become obsolete. Um, but I, w w don't you think also that all that they achieved in this in this age has somehow underpins what we have now. And do you think that the changes of the 16th century, especially in, in Lutheran Northern Europe, uh, can we, do they still exist today? If, if you look at a, um, the law of say Denmark or Germany or the United States, would you, would you find it informed? I, since, since you're both a historian and a lawyer, <laughs> do you yes, find that, that, that the law we have is informed by the 16th century and, and how? That's a very good question. Uh, it's hard for me to say this, honestly, because um, there were so many changes afterwards. Uh, just think about the French Revolution and, um, and so on, uh, the Nazi period. So it's very hard for me to say that nowadays we still have something of the of the, the Lutherans or something of the Catholics and, and so on. Uh, I may think, but that's just a kind of hypothesis that needs to be investigated, that we still have in Europe differences between Catholics and Lutherans. And somehow these differences are um, still present in certain conceptions that we have. If we think about, for instance, uh, the conception that the Germans have about depths um, there is this uh, idea that is still very common in Germany that people have to pay their debts. Instead, there is the American model and uh, I would say more the Italian or Spanish model that instead of always uh, trying to pay debts, people can have more and more debts because the financial system needs this. <coughs> Sorry. So I will think that this differences in terms of mentality might still be there in terms of mentality. But it's very hard and it will require a different project to understand whether there are connections still present now between the works of the early modern reformers and, and scholastics and uh, the situation nowadays. 
I, this is just a kind of hypothesis. I, I, re I really appreciate how difficult that that is. Let's let's look let's look in the other direction and and talk about the past. And one of the things that your book made me, who a, a non-specialist, wonder about is where does law come from in the first place? Since we live in this world where law is so central to public life, and imagining a system without any law would be very scary. But I suppose a fish does not know that it is wet, even though a fish probably would not like to live outside of the water. So you return in your study. To, to, the, to the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, and especially seven and eight, you shall not steal and you shall not bear false witness. And it reminded me how you, uh, you uh, read Exodus or Leviticus as, as, a, as, a, as a narrative, but so much of that text is, is rules. And is, is this where law comes from? Is the, the earliest people finding rules to govern and, and um, interpreting them as divine, divine rules uh, Maybe this is what your first part, where you first begin with um, Catholic theologians and continue to Lutheran theologians, where they explain what they need as as the as the as the divine will. Uh, yes, somehow the, the point. But tell me if I'm wrong. Uh, um, the, the point is here that there was a need of guidance. Um, this need was first of all for the for the Catholics. Because they had this rigid system, and the, basically, if you sin, you had to suffer a punishment for your sin. So there was a judge, and this judge was actually the, the, your confessor. The confessor was not simply a confessor like it is today, but he was actually a real judge, and he had uh, he needed actually uh, to know how to inflict the right punishment. So he needed somehow uh, instruments for um, performing his, his job, but also. This is true for the penitent, because the penitent, the, the Christian, had to know what was right and what was, uh, was uh, wrong. And so there was a need to find some rules. And the basic, uh, the basic idea was that the Ten Commandments include certain, certain rules, but not only the Ten Commandments, because for the, this is, the idea of the Ten Commandments is very much Lutheran. For the Catholics, uh, uh, was not always the Decalogue, but there were uh, also rules somehow uh, that were created on the basis of Aristotelian philosophy and also uh, from the canon law more in, more in general. So not always the Decalogue. The Decalogue is mostly the, the Lutheran way of approaching the, the subject. Let's say that there were different ways, like for instance, um, the virtues for the Catholics was very much important uh, to describe sins according to the, the virtues but also um, system based on the um, yeah decalogue as well, but on, on the subjects, for instance, um, the subject of contract and all the, the, um, the norms about contracts. And this was mostly a subject for theologians and canonists, but um, the, the jurists had also to say their opinion on, uh, on this. Instead, for the Lutherans, it's pretty much the decalogue. And why is this? Because, of course, for them, the scriptures were the... the starting point for um, for a moral life. And so you see also here a kind of difference between uh, the Lutherans and, uh, for instance, for the Catholic, there is this idea of natural law as a law of nature, law of reason. And for the, for the Lutherans, it is instead mostly charity and uh, the precept of love for, for, for your neighbor. So 
the idea is uh, that the scriptures are somehow the, 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 the starting point for legal, not for, yeah, for legal principles, but also for moral principles. Instead, for the Catholics, it's uh, mostly an idea of, um, yeah, guiding the Christians towards uh, their, their life, but rules not necessarily have to be based on the Ten Commandments. They could also be based uh, just on philosophy or the canon law or the virtues, but not necessarily on uh, on the Decalogue somehow. Is that uh, okay with you? Is, yeah. is more yeah. that clear? What, what are the, when you say virtues, are you are we speaking about um, uh, uh, discernment yeah, and temperance and, and th those virtues? What are these virtues? Uh, yes, we are talking about, for instance, the virtue of faith or the virtue of charity, but also the virtues, uh, yeah, mainly about this um, these virtues, but because they were important for contracts, for instance, the virtue of faith was was central for contracts. But um, yeah, mo mostly about uh, these virtues. But I'm also thinking, for instance, for the Catholic, the the, the seven capital sins, for instance, envy. And, and so on. So this was another way of conceptualizing uh, somehow. So faith, charity, and hope, these virtues, but also they, they were taken from the Aristotelian um, philosophy. So, yeah. Yes. Okay. That, thank you. That, 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 that explains it. Now, um, Martin Luther was not opposed to property, and he opposed the Peasants' Rebellion in 1524 and 25, and then Lutherans were later opposed to the utopian millenarian Anabaptist Teufelreich um, in uh, in Münster, and reject which rejected uh, the traditions of private property and also marriage. So uh, there is a there is a way that the that the Reformation uh, is. Um, conserves some of the norms and, and and enshrines them. And can you say a bit about how they balance that? What is the appropriate way to hold property? And what is the appropriate way to, um, you, you write about interest or usura. Uh, maybe you can uh, say, say how, they, how they developed those norms for the, the contract and the legal system. Uh, yes, it's a huge subject, but... I try to summarize. Somehow, uh, the basic idea of Luther was uh, always um, charity, so you have not to harm your neighbor, but somehow he distinguished uh, subjects. He distinguished between uh, different types of Christians. There were actually the Christians who needed uh, a loan because they were actually able to, to, to work, and so this was a necessity because they needed money, but they were actually able to work. So this type of Christians, the Christians who were actually able to work, they could be helped by a loan. And this loan needed no interest, but it was a loan. Then there were the, the Christians who actually uh, needed just helms because these uh, were not able to work, so they couldn't possibly repay a loan. So there was no... It made no sense, actually, to give a loan to them because there was no way that they could actually repay that loan. So they had to be helped with uh, with helms. And then there were, uh, but this was developed by Luther's followers, there were the Christians who were actually rich. These Christians were rich so they could actually borrow money uh, 
with uh, an interest rate because they had the money to pay the interest, simply. So there was no breaching of the law of love with this, uh, by charging an interest here because these people were rich. And so somehow they came to the conclusion that um, there was no need to forbid uh, the charge of an interest to, towards all the people, but it was instead more uh, appropriate to distinguish between different categories of people. The Catholics, they simply forbade uh, charges of, of, uh, of interest because this was uh, prohibited by a um, uh, decretal of a canon law norm in the Middle Age. And this canon law norm was based on interpretation of the Cree passage of, uh, of the scripture, where Christ says, um, land hoping for nothing in return. According to uh, the Middle Age canonists, this was meant to say that Christ meant to say that no interest in a loan was allowed. The Lutherans instead came to say that this passage has to be interpreted in the framework of love. And if, we, if, uh, if actually we are not uh, damaging our neighbor, if we are practicing love uh, towards our neighbor, and this happens for sure if uh, our neighbor is actually rich and so he can pay the interest, then in that case, the interest can be charged. You can charge an interest towards a rich person because he has actually the, the, the money to pay the interest. It was um, a different approach from the scholastics. The scholastics, they just, it was once again, uh, in terms of uh, legal reasoning, so we need a fixed rule. The rule says you can't borrow money at interest. For the, the Lutherans, the rule was you can actually borrow money at interest and you can actually lend your money to, to the neighbor and charge an interest to him. But you always have to remember the precept of love. So if the, the, the person you are actually lending your money uh, cannot pay the interest, you have then to remit the debt. That's also a very interesting thing of the Lutherans. If uh, your neighbor becomes poor because of, a, I don't know, a calamity or something, a pandemic like we have today, then you should remit the debt because of charity. That's the reasoning somehow of the, of the Lutherans. It's a, it's, a, it's a middle path. It's a, not to, uh, you can charge interest for the wealthy, but not not the poor. And I think we have that in our bankruptcy laws, perhaps. Uh, perhaps, yes. We have start, something some, something similar for sure. But I have to tell you that, for instance, in the past, the interest rate that they were actually able to charge in a loan was 5%. So if we think today about an interest rate of 5% is a dream for bankers, but maybe <laughs> not for customers. So let's talk a bit about bankers, because you make the argument that um, Martin Luther was uh, opposed to the Fuggers and the um, Welsers who were, I mean, perhaps supporting his mortal enemy, you know, the Emperor Charles V, but they were also draining these um, German cities. You make, I think you write, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, that all the German cities were floundering economically, except for Hamburg, which of course has a Hanseatic connection and all the Baltic Sea trade is, can you describe the 16th, early 16th century 
fiscal situation for a for a German city. Be, uh, they seem to me such wealthy commercial places, you know, in, in the sort of in the in the memory of time. Um, these these German merchants, you know, uh, but but what were what was the economics? What was the banking? And what did Luther think? Uh, okay, so the the, the situation in uh, in actually in um, in Germany was very different from the cities and the countryside, because for the great part, the German economy was actually based on the um, on the land. So, uh, the, if we, when we think about bankers, we have to think about uh, Augsburg, or we have to think about uh, Rostock, or commercial cities somehow. Instead, the reality in the countryside, for instance, Wittenberg, where Luther lived, it was mainly an economy centered on, on the land. But that doesn't mean necessarily that um, commerce, trade was actually not important. It was important anyway, but uh, certainly uh, it was mostly practiced in, in, in big cities and great cities. For instance, we see um, in Rostock, uh, there is actually... Um, a theologian who is actually both one is uh, Johannes Aipinus, the other one is uh, Paul van Heitzen, Heitzen, actually, one answer, but uh, Johannes Aipinus. And both of them, they actually dealt with um, contract law issues. And I'm not sure, but I'm almost sure that they decided to write sermons on this because uh, the economy in Rostock uh, required such a kind of uh, theological advice. Instead, for Luther, uh, I don't think he actually had uh, uh, somehow. Wittenberg wasn't a city of bankers. It was not like Augsburg, so uh, or or Rostock, for instance. So he had experience with that for sure, but uh, not something that he had in um, yeah in um, daily life somehow. But he, he had to, to guide the Reformation somehow and discuss also these issues. And there were a lot of disputes with Johannes Heck, who was actually a Catholic theologian, and he tried somehow to defend a legal, opera, a legal a financial operation called the, the 5% contract of Wiederkauflicher Zins. To explain this is quite complex, but I just say to you and to the people who are actually listening to us that this is a contract created in fraud of the usury prohibition. Somehow, as the Catholics said, the loans at interest were forbidden. You couldn't charge a loan, uh, uh, charge, charge interest to, to people in a loan. Then they devised a sale. So they created a, something very similar which centered on the, on the land, on the fruits of the land, and it was called a sale. As it was a sale, but the, the effect was basically the same, then it could be practiced. And Luther refused this because Luther basically said, no, it doesn't matter if it is a sale or it's a loan. If you charge interest, this is something that is completely wrong anyway. And this idea that um, we have to distinguish between people and uh, the, 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 if charity is actually not offended is something that was developed by, by Luther's followers. So Luther himself was actually against charge of interest. But his followers, and then it's very interesting because we see a change, Luther's followers somehow changed this view. Started from Luther, but changed this view and finished, ended up allowing the charge of interest in a, in a loan. And then at the moment, uh, it didn't matter anymore 
uh, at that moment, it didn't matter anymore if it was a, a sale or a loan. It was just a matter of breaching charity or not breaching charity. That was the, the, the point for the Lutherans. But Luther himself at the beginning, he was completely against the charge of interest. Uh, is that clear? Yes, yes. And I also think we can see the 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 um, the trajectory of his thinking because he began the whole Reformation. At least this is the way we learn this when we're very young, uh, is in opposition to the idea that you would transact money for an indulgence, this this penance, and that German pennies were flying down to Rome to build palaces for, for the, the clergy, right? That you, can't, uh, you cannot exchange money for spiritual matters. And I, I, is, that, would, is there a connection there, or am I oversimplifying? Uh, actually, on this, I didn't find, I didn't find a connection. That, yes, that could be, of course, but not something in specific that I, that I work with about, about this. A connection that, that, that is, uh, is actually that um, somehow the church, the church was actually using these contracts, this Fidia Kauflika, Zins, or Kensus. The church uh, bishops and uh, church institutions were actually using these contracts to get their money. In this sense, yes, there is a connection. So not so much about uh, the indulgences, but mostly about, I would say, the, the, the using of this specific contract that Luther condemned by the church. And Luther said the, the church shouldn't use this contract. Okay, so um, from that position to the idea that there is an appropriate uh, interest, no more than 5% for the wealthy and charity for, for the poor, Yeah, um, you, you write uh, that... Um, so... Another very simple view we have of uh, Luther is from Max Weber that the Protestant work ethic leads to the spirit of capitalism. Did you do you, do you think that is uh, incorrect? Uh, okay, Max Weber is such a great subject because when I was writing actually my PhD, I had to discuss Weber, of course. But you will find that there are tons of book books about Weber and people said exactly the, the opposite thing of what Weber said or simply he, he said that he was right. In my view, somehow Weber wasn't right actually, uh, but it uh, was right somehow to stress the fact that there is a connection between economy and theology. That I think is right, but I don't think, and this is what most, uh, actually I would say good eco economists said, that somehow the theory of Max Weber is actually wrong and de facto it didn't work. But that there was actually a connection between theology and, uh, and law and theology and economics, yes, I think this is pretty much true. And uh, in my book, I tried to show that um, somehow it was probably actually the opposite. So somehow the Lutherans were even more strict, they were even stricter than the Catholics because the Catholics, with this um, general prohibition, they simply forbade uh, charges of interest. But for the Lutherans, the conscience was so much important. And then they, the, 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 the Lutherans, then they had somehow always to, uh, to, to consider if they are damaging or not damaging the neighbors. Um, but yeah, uh, yeah, the Catholics, I didn't say this rightly, but the, the, the Catholics basically, they forbade interest uh, on loans, but then they allowed all these contracts that were somehow um, 
sales, they classified these cancels or other contracts like this that were classified as sales, but somehow they were then widely practiced by merchants. Instead, uh, for, for the Lutherans, it was more kind of personal decision. Of course, guided by, by, by the scriptures, guided by priests, but a kind of uh, a personal decision instead of a general uh, prohibition. And then everybody can do whatever he wants as soon as he uses a, a sale instead of a loan. That's that's very that's very interesting, and it's a, um, it, uh, and I think it's a Catholic. Um, as a Catholic, I think we can make the joke that the, you that the, there's a tendency to make rules and then ignore them. But I I think that's a, a sim- simplification and a, and a joke. But I can see how uh, the um, I can see how uh, Luther developed that. Would you say a, a little bit more about the? Uh, different rules that came out of this? For example, you said something about, um, did you say property and prostitution or privacy and prostitution? How did that, how was that in early modern Germany uh, interpreted different between the Lutherans and the Catholics? Uh, Yes, 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 yes. Okay. So um, first of all, let me say that I'm also Catholic, but uh, for me it was so fun, uh, so much interesting to study a different perspective to what I was uh, somehow my tradition. So to study the Lutheran tradition was very, very much interesting for me, even though I, I am and I remain a Catholic my, myself. But um, yeah, so coming to the um, property or sale, um, I think uh, if we look at um, sale, for instance, is very much uh, interesting. For the, for the Catholics and for the Lutherans, there was always uh, the need of a just price. What is the just price? Simply, you can't sell goods are the, the, the value that you think is they are worth. This is something that uh, we have now, but in the past it wasn't like this. In the past, you always had to keep equality. What is equality? Equality means that uh, it's a kind of um, uh, legacy of Aristotle. Uh, commutative justice means that uh, everybody has to um, get the same of the same um, benefits from a certain transaction. So none of the parties has to gain more and the other less. If I say, if I sell something, if I sell something that doesn't uh, have the, the just price, so the, the market price, the just price was actually the market price, then I'm actually uh, defrauding my neighbor because I'm getting more actually than the, than the value, the real value of the, of the, the, the specific good. So if a house the market price, market price of the of a house is let's say three thousand uh, dollars, but I sell the house at five hundred dollars. Then I'm defrauding my neighbors. So there was this idea that uh, Christians who sell a good for a price that is actually higher than the, the market price are defrauding their uh, their neighbors. For the for the for the for the Catholics. If there was such a kind of violation, they had an entire body of rules how to make restitution. What is restitution? Well, nowadays, if you commit a sin, you just go to your priest, you confess it, you have your penance, uh, your your punishment for this, and that's it. But in the early modern period, in the Middle Age, you have to make restitution. So you had actually to uh, return to your neighbor that you defrauded defrauded, the money that you actually have defrauded. So if I uh, sold my house at $500 and the market price was actually 
dollars, uh, $300. There are these $200 that I defrauded my neighbor, and I had to return this to my uh, neighbor. And this, for the Catholic, was a requirement for salvation. If I didn't return my money, this $200 that I defrauded uh, to, my, to my neighbor, then I, I, I would actually uh, not be saved. And the same was true for the, for the Lutherans, but in a different sense. It was not a matter of salvation, because salvation is something you already got. But it was a matter of uh, somehow um, gratitude for, for God for the salvation that, uh, that I already obtained. Then I don't have to sin anymore. And so if I discover that I am in a state of sin, so I'm actually sinning, then I have to return this to my neighbor. But for the Catholics, as this was a matter of uh, crucial matter of salvation, so they dictated a body of rules, very specific. Uh, for instance, what to do if my neighbor is dead? What to do if uh, uh, I don't have any more of the money? What do I have to do? The Lutherans, there, there was just a general principle. You have just to return your money and, uh, and that's it. But they didn't specify all the specific, all the, all the rules in, in detail. Instead, for, for, the, for the Catholics, this was so, so important that they actually to, to establish fixed rules. And then we have these uh, treatises dedicated to restitution, the restitutione, and so something like 1,000 pages, how to make restitution. The, the Lutherans, let's say 20 pages, and that's it. You have to make restitution. How you make it is your problem somehow. This was it's general, it's very general in very general terms, but they were not so detailed as the, the Catholics on this. Thank you. Well, I think there's more to say, but we have to we have to leave it there. And I just want to say again that um, as you as you observe, your conclusion by itself is a brilliant essay, but then the book as as a whole is filled with a, a lucid and extremely specific discussion that, that uh, sets it up. So it's quite a magisterial accomplishment, and it was a great pleasure to read. So Dr. Paolo Astori, thank you very much for being part of the New Books in History podcast. Thank you so much. It was a great, great pleasure for me. And thank you for, for this interview. Thank you.